0: John chapter 19, verse 17 to 24. I'm going to put up a picture of Golgotha. It's amazing because I've been going there since 79. The erosion has changed over the years. And when we went this last time, the bridge on the nose is no longer there. And we have to show old pictures. The Lord would not have been crucified on top of the hill but actually on the road, which is right in front of, um, you know, a couple hundred yards from the gates of the city. It would have been the main highway. And uh, one of the things that the British uh, guide pointed out, it's not like you see in the movies where um, the cross is high and you're looking down. Actually, it was more like two feet off the ground. So the eye-to-eye contact would have very much been in place. We really don't know, and it really doesn't matter, um, if it was low or if, whether it was high. but here in these verses, let's pick it up. I wanted you to see why they called why we're called Calvary Chapel in verse 17, and he bearing his cross, went out to a place that's called the place of a skull, which is in the Hebrew called Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also a tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, Therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it will be that the scriptures might be fulfilled which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. On Wednesday, um, we began an introduction to the book of Revelation. And one of the areas that we spent quite a bit of time on is that um, numbers are important to the Lord. And... We find that 4, 7, 10, 12 are the main ones that are reoccurring in the book of Revelation. Um, we stopped with the number seven because seven is the predominant um, number in the book of Revelation. It simply is a number of completion. And um, he's, he's told to write seven letters to the seven churches. We have um, um, the seven voices. We we went through at least ten to twenty different places where we have the seven angels and the seven thunders, and uh, seven just being reoccurring over and over and over again. Well, um, the Gospel of John is written by John, but he's also the one that the Lord used to write the book of Revelation. And it's interesting to me that when John wrote his gospel, it is not like the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels because they're similar. John is not. John chooses to write his whole gospel with one point, and that is that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the word was God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. He begins the book that way and he ends. Both chapter 20 of the last verse and chapter 21. But he chooses, instead of doing what the other gospel writers did, he chooses seven I am statements. I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, and so on and so forth. Seven of them. And the I am there in the Greek is the same wording that would be used in the Old Testament when the voice came from the burning bush, when Moses asked the question, who shall I say you are? And the voice said, I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. So basically, John seven times uses the number seven for the seven I am statements. But then he only chooses to write about seven miracles. Now in John 20, it says many other things Jesus did that are not written in this book. And then he goes on and he explains, he said, if they were all written, <laughs> everything that Jesus ever did, there wouldn't be enough books that could in the world that could contain it, everything that God has ever done, but i've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is God, but He only uses seven. Um, seven times in the Gospel of John, he is going to say this: "My hour has not yet come. Seven times it's repeated. The first time happens to go long with the first miracle in uh, John chapter 2 where he turned the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. Mary came to him and and, um, asked him, the wine had run out, must have been an embarrassment for the host. And the Lord, you know, um, tells Mary this. He says, "My, my hour has not yet come. And the last words of Mary that she ever said, I think this is a good one to remember. The last words of Mary is whatever he says, do it. And, But that being said, seven times in the Gospel of John, he says, my hour has not yet come. But when we get to John 12, verse 27, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And now the reason that God sent his son into the world was upon us. He's in Gethsemane, and he is aware and all too well aware of what's about to take place. If it's one thing we learn going through the Gospel of John, is that Jesus is always telling people something about themselves that nobody else knows. So there's nothing that he doesn't know. He says, guys, I've told you these things ahead of time, so when they happen, then you'll believe. And now, oh, Peter, James, and John had to feel terrible after realizing that the time he needed them the most was the time that they let him down. And he asked me, he says, guys, they need you to pray for me now. And, um, you know, they did their best, but they were tired and they fell asleep. You know, you just, you, you never know. Uh, we had a funeral here yesterday for the law family, Mike and Sally lost their dad, John. We had a funeral. And I know sooner got done with the funeral. And I was walking upstairs and Mary hands me a note And uh, it was from my good friends Mike and Mary Damro from Lake Geneva area. Mike is a master craftsman in building stairs, and Simon, his son, worked with him every day. Um, If it wasn't for Mike Damro, I probably wouldn't be up here today. I don't know if there would be a Calvary Chapel of Appleton. Lord could use somebody else, but... It was Mike who witnessed to a young kid named Andy Papendick from Sheboygan, Wisconsin when he was 17 years old in Huntington Beach who got involved in the communal houses but he wanted to go back to his hometown of Sheboygan and preach the gospel with a team. We were sent out in teams. And nothing happened. So there's a university at Oshkosh, college kids there, so... He and his wife uh, moved to Oshkosh, and they start a Shiloh house. My friend Pat Gohan and I were the first ones there. But if Mike wouldn't have witnessed to Andy, there would have never been a Shiloh house in Oshkosh. He was the one that wanted to go back to his hometown. Why am I telling you this? Well, they become dear friends. And um, they were part of the Jesus movement. What love song would be to the early Jesus people movement in our country, the group Sheep, which was the lead singer, and uh, was to Europe. Some of you old timers remember the musical group, group It's a Beautiful Day. And um, uh, Mary is the one who uh, does the vocals on that beautiful song, White Bird, for for your old timers. So why am I telling you this story? I just finished a funeral and now I get a phone call from Mary. She said, Would you call me? And they their son Simon had died at the age of forty, wife and three kids. And I wonder, you know, in a funeral yesterday, I just go, What do people do when they lose a loved one? And what hope can we have? Well, we have hope. Because today is Good Friday where he dies, but in three days we have Resurrection Sunday. And he who lives and believes in him, as we did on Palm Sunday, will never die. You guys are never going to die. But the price that had to be paid so that because he lives, we're going to live also is where we're headed to today. And um, I also want... You to pray for the Damros. It's very difficult because um, Mike worked with his son every single day. But you know, could not it happen to any of us at any time? None of us know. We we have an appointment, and here today we're talking about the death of our Savior. Um, but you know, during the funeral yesterday, the blessed hope. Um, Mike's dad. He's very, very much alive. He's got a new body. This tent is dissolved. Now he has this home not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, forever and ever. No more pain, no more suffering. So as we consider today, um, the last words of Jesus. Jesus spoke seven times during his six hours of hanging on Calvary's cross in this place called Golgotha. And now, if you go down a little bit, you would see the street, and that's actually um, where the crucifixion would have taken place. There have been years when I've gotten very much into the brutality and the beating that he went through, and we would focus on that. Isaiah tells us he was marred more than any man. They pulled his beard out. You guys with beards, you know what that feels like. If you get your beard just yanked on but marred more than any man. And um, when a man is facing his end, uh, he says things that should be marked down and recorded. For instance, on the day that Karl Marx died on March 14, 1883, his housekeeper came to him and said, Tell me your last words and I'll write them down. Mark replied, Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. The last words can be very revealing. P.T. Barnum said, as he as he was dying, "What were today's receipts? (laughs) What difference is it going to make?" You know, think that how dumb is that? How much money did I make today? I'm going to die today, but how much money did I make today? Napoleon said, "Chief of the army." Alexander the Great. when he was dying, was asked a question, you rule the world. Who, who's going to inherit it? He didn't have a son until after he was dead. He said, give it to the strong. And as we're going to see in Daniel, Alexander is prominent, but his four generals are also a Daniel. Daniel, as we go through the book of Daniel, which will be starting after we get through with the holidays. And his, those were his last words. Charles Spurgeon's last words were, Jesus died for me. And John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist religion, said, the best of all is God is with us. Famous last words. What are you going to say? What would you say? Uh, they're important. So what we're going to look at on this hour, um, it's going on quarter to two, but between 12 and three, the sun refused to shine. And it wasn't that it was a cloudy day. This was a supernatural event. It happened once before during the plagues of Egypt. It said there it was a darkness that could be felt. So um, the very first thing I'll have you turn to the book of Luke. We'll go through the seven things that Jesus said from the cross. The first one is in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 34. Picking it up in verse 26. Now, when they had led him away, they had hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from that country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, And there were women who mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the bear and the wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were two others, and they were criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then they divided his garments. This is actually a fulfillment. Uh, The suffering that is portrayed in the Gospels, I don't think compares or does justice to what Psalm 22 does. Where we read here, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, the ignorance of what was taking place on that day is... um, they had no awareness. You know, the argument is that the Romans killed Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. I killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. They did it in complete ignorance. And they, uh, it says here, they actually, after they committed their deed, they were just interested in what they could get from them. And they're... they're this is the same thing that was passed on. Uh, the ignorance, when Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned, as he was dying, he looked up and he says, I, I look and I see, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then he said, Lord, don't hold them accountable for this deed. And he forgave those and... Um, what I should, because of the doctrine that's out there today, this isn't universalism. This isn't all-inclusive. The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. So this is not a blanket statement here that's often taken out of context where Jesus said he forgave. They didn't know what they were doing, so they pull it out of context. But here we find it was the first words, that come out of his mouth. Nothing vindictive, just the naivety of what was going to happen. How fickle a crowd can be because just a couple days earlier they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're asking for his crucifixion and Barabbas' release instead. Luke 23, the second thing Uh, He speaks to one of the thieves on the cross. So go to verse 35, and we read, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him and offered him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in Greek, Latin, and Hebrews, this is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged beside him saying, if you are the Christ, then save yourself and save us too. But the other answered and rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds but this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all I said. Something happened. He was a mocker in the beginning, but maybe it was the statement, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That he began to think this guy is so different that I believe he is the son of God. And he asks the Lord to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Now, the second thing Jesus said from the cross, if you have the King James, it says probably verily, verily. I have the new King James. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, Today, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's the second thing that the Lord said from the cross. And as I think of this, there's often a misunderstanding that paradise is heaven. Paradise is not heaven. Because we know from Ephesians, and we know because Jesus said in Matthew 12, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he didn't go to heaven that day. He wouldn't be in heaven when Mary, when we talk about it on Sunday, When he did rise from the dead, Mary put a bear hold on him, and she wasn't going to let him get away again. And he said, Mary, don't do that. Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So paradise cannot be heaven. And yet Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this is a whole Bible study within itself. If you like taking notes, then write down Ephesians chapter 4, 8 through 10, because it, it explains to us where it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Well, who's captive? And he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? That he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then we have a story explaining it in Luke's gospel between Lazarus, who died a poor beggar, and the rich man. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. He couldn't go to heaven because Jesus hadn't yet died for the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, these all died in faith. And it lists all the examples that were to follow from Abraham and and um, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and the, the prophets as examples. But then it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise. Well, the promise was they looked for a home whose builder and maker was God. But they couldn't go there yet, because um, the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sin. It was a symbol. It was a waiting for the real sacrifice to come. Right now, Israel is celebrating Passover. Passover lamb would have been inspected. It had to be one year without blemish, without fault. And it would be an atonement for that family and their sins. When Jesus said to the man on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, he was there when Jesus showed up. And he took the keys of hell and death. And he says, I'll take those. And this chamber was where the rich man was. He was in torment. But Lazarus was comforted in Abraham's bosom. The man who died on the cross, his sinner's prayer was, Lord, simply remember me. And I guess I want to get sidetracked here just a little bit, especially people who like our honor deathbed or, or you're, you're sharing with somebody, you know, they just have uh, a little time left and um, they're not believers and they might have an attitude saying, look, I've been this way my whole life. You think I'm going to change now? I know who I am. You don't have to convince me I'm a bad guy. It's a good time to tell the story about the sinner on the cross. He um, never had any good works. He was a thief. Um, he never said the sinner's prayer. Uh, he was never baptized. And the list goes on and on. He had nothing to offer except, Lord, would you please remember me? That's all. And that man was three days in Abraham's bosom. But after that, he ascended, like it says in Matthew 27, verse 52. After Jesus resurrected... So, Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. It says, then many of the graves in Jerusalem were opened, and people actually went around and appeared to people. It was a stop off point. Why the Lord was letting them say goodbye on their way to heaven, I don't know, but He did. Maybe they weren't believers. They said, Lord, can I stop and talk to Mom and Dad? They'll believe if they see this one. <laughs> we don't know, but the scripture clearly teaches. When Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Um, When he died, he descended also. And he was three days and three nights, as the scripture says. And here was a man who had nothing going for him except the grace of God. That's a good place for an amen, by the way. Only grace. No works. He had no good works. Wasn't a nice guy. He was honest enough to admit that, hey, this really might be the Son of God. The third saying from the cross is in John 9, John chapter 19, verse 25. So if you want to turn to John 19, 25, we have in verse 25 now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary the uh, wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we have the Marys there, and and, and Mary's mother's sister. Um, when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, this would be John, that's how John always referred to himself, he said to his mother, now this is the third thing that the Lord said from the cross, He looks at Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, which would have been John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So here, John was the only one that came back. In Mark 14, verse 50, in the garden, when they came to arrest him It said they all forsook him Everybody took off Including a little guy Who I believe is John Mark And um, He ran away naked because One of the guards grabbed him Got a hold of his uh, robe that he was wearing The guards left with the robe But Mark takes off But that's mentioned in one, one of the gospels So What happens here is our Lord Jesus was reigning from the cross. He's the one who was in control. He's giving the orders. He was directing his own followers and his loved ones. And here he restores John. John had forsaken him and fled, just as it says in Mark 14. They all did. All the disciples had done this. The shepherd had been smitten and the sheep had been scattered. But John came back to the cross, and he was restored and forgiven. Just on a personal note, you and I may stray. We may disobey. And um, let's face it, it's this time of year that some people, the only time they ever go to church is Good Friday or Easter or Christmas. And um, maybe you've gotten away from the Lord and forgotten the goodness of the Lord. Well, the Lord welcomed John back. He came to the cross. This was not the safest place to stand, or an easy place to stand. But his love for the Lord, as he stood there with Mary, um, he entrusts Mary to John, and he instructs John to take care of his mother. A lot of us are dealing with that. I went through that stage. It's done and both mom and dad are with the Lord right now. But so many in the fellowship are, are talking about, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with my mom right now. I've got to take care of my mom right now. And it's taking all of your time. And uh, let me just tell you this. You're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. Because if you don't, you'll regret it later. So w- w- whatever the cost is, do the best you can with taking care of mom and dad Jesus was concerned for his mother. When Jesus was dedicated at the temple, um, there was a man there named Simeon. Now, he was there every day because the Holy Spirit had said to him, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And so he's there, waiting, waiting, waiting. Someday, the Messiah is actually going to come and show up. Well, he prophesied to Joseph and Mary in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Then Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And then he says this, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This was a day of rejoicing, of dedication. Here the guy had waited his whole life, and now he could die knowing here's the one who's going to redeem the entire world. But then he has to look at Mary and he says, Mary, the day's going to come where you're going to be cut right to the heart, because you're going to see your son go through uh, Roman crucifixion, which was one of the most painful ways of execution ever invented. And she was there watching it happen. So Simeon prophesies, and now it's being fulfilled as Jesus is speaking from the cross. The fourth thing that the Lord said for the cross is in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 verses 40, 45, and 46. <clears throat> now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. Uh, Jesus would have been on the cross from six till three, but now it's noon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lami sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is where I made my mistake. Now that it's been corrected, I got a perfect record again, and I can go on. And it's (laughs) like, you're not buying it, I can see. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no way that any pastor, any person, could describe what's happening here. It defies description because they've always been. I can almost wrap my head around living forever, never dying. But what I can't do is go back and say there's never been a beginning with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They have always been always until this moment. So how do you just how do you put that into words? How do you preach that? How do you explain that? And the fact of the matter is, it's almost impossible, because it had never been done before. So we have this darkness, first of all. I'll address that. I think that the darkness of the cross was a darkness of just how solemn of a moment it was. The just died for the unjust. The innocent Lamb of God died for guilty sinners. I remember that in the book of Exodus, it was a great darkness, the ninth plague that God sent to Egypt where there was three days of darkness, a darkness so thick it could be felt. There was a darkness over Egypt before the final judgment of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. So I see a connection here. Darkness first and then the lamb um, being being shed for Passover. Behold, the Lord Jesus Christ is three hours of darkness. I wonder if God was not saying that this was an hour of solemn judgment. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Our Lord's death on the cross was a very solemn, serious, holy event. The darkness of this is Solomon, the Lamb who was dying for our sins. This is the first time where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was lonely, um, he was forsaken, and this is what sin does sin isolates, sin separates man from God, sin separates man from man. Sin separates a man from himself. It's like the prodigal who came to himself. Sin separates a man from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid themselves because of the loneliness of sin. Jesus, aware of the immensity of all of man's sin, he thought about it. You think of, um, let's make it personal. I'm not going to ask you to give a testimony right now. I just want you to personally in your mind go to the moment where you think you committed the worst sin of your life. Just think about it for a second. You might have to think about it for more than a minute because there's too many to choose from (laughs) in my case. But just hold it there for a moment and be aware the justice that should have been done. And now multiply that just for yourself with the rest of your sins. Now multiply that to the seven plus billion people living on the planet today. Now multiply that over 6,000 years of time. Every, Every person has a worse sin that they think is their worst sin. So how can you put into words when we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is just. Oh, yeah, he's loving. But it's not like the shack that's out there right now that said that God is such a loving God. Or Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, which says God is such a loving God, he would never do that to any of his children. Well, that's not doctrine. Doctrine. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The price, our God is a loving God, of course, but he's also a just God, and justice has to be served. And so, but the immensity of it, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted out. He was aware. When we, Again, when we read through John, the, the woman who was married five times, nobody knew that, the woman at the well. And he was calling her out, making her aware of her conviction. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Can I say that again? Without conviction, there can be no conversion. There has to be repentance. So did Jesus die for the sins of all the people who ever lived? Absolutely. But it's only applicable when you receive the free gift. Whosoever will. You're whosoever. And if you believe what Jesus did for you, then he will respond and take away your sin. And grace is being shown. I was uh, visiting um, a brother in a fellowship. We need to pray for him. He's in hospice right now, Jim Rush. Him and his family. And, and um, he's in Chilton. I thought, well, as long as I'm out here... There's a, um, a farm that that sells whole milk, not pasteurized, cream still on the top, that kind of stuff. So I decided I'd go there. And I, I bought the milk, and I'm on my way back, and now I'm in a little hurry. And um, um, I got pulled over by a police officer. <laughs> and... Um, I knew I was speeding. And he says, Do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, Yeah. And he says and he says, Well, you you passed a truck in a no passing lane. I, he didn't know about the speeding. That's what I was thinking. And and I just looked at him and I said, Officer, I am guilty as charged. Just give me the ticket. And that's what I, I told him. I said, I'm guilty. He didn't know about the speeding part, I did. But he saw me, and he pulled me over. He says, and he says but, but by the way, what are you doing out here? And I said, oh, I'm picking up some milk from this uh, holistic farm that sells it. And so he's picking my brain a little bit. he says, no, you, you have to do I think it's great you're doing your job. And um, if you say that I did this, then I did it. He says, I just want to know one thing. Did you know that there was an old past sign there? And I said, I really didn't. But it doesn't change the fact that I broke the law. I'm actually arguing against myself. (laughs) And so he looks at me and he says, you know what? Okay, so you don't drive this road often. And I said, no. And then I told him, I actually told him, I was visiting a guy in a hospital. And I told him I was his pastor. And um, he had already made up his mind what he was going to do with me. So that wasn't any brownie points at all. But my point was, if justice was done, I would have been given a ticket because I deserved it. I broke the law. But what he did is he showed me grace. And instead of giving me the ticket, he says, I'm just going to give you a warning. You're from Kakana, and you don't get down here often. And I said, well, thank you very much. (laughs) And he says, you know, I really don't believe in coincidences. And you're not going to give me a ticket, but I'd like to give you something. And without thinking, I'm reaching down to where you keep your CDs in the car. I'm not thinking that. There's a police officer wondering, saying, I'm going to give you something right now. (laughs) And I'm reaching down, and I'm pulling out, seeking and finding God, but he doesn't know that. So I said, would you please take this? Uh, Even though uh, I'm not getting a ticket, would you take this? And he said, well, I don't know about this stuff. He said, what denomination is it? I said, well, we're we're non-denominational. He says, non-denominational. He says, okay, I'll read it. So I I went all the way home praising the Lord. He didn't even know about the speeding. He he gave me grace for passing in a no-pass zone. And um, I said, he said, thank you very much. He went his way, and I went my way, praising the Lord all the way home. <laughs> but you know what? You know, we, we hear that God works all things out together for the good. He's just. And I really think the guy, the Lord wanted me to give him, Seeking and Finding God by Dave Hunt. And here's the thing. I had just put the books in the car the day before. I saw him up in my office I said, I'm not, pack, I'm not packing. What I mean by packing is, <laughs> i worked out pretty good in this story, didn't packing. That you guys should have your God of Wonders right there, ready to go, whatever tool you use. Just you never know when, um, when, you, when you're going to get it. Now I got pulled over another time, and, and the guy didn't, he gave me a ticket. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, yeah, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. And he says, well, yeah, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. And I said, officer, you're doing your job, and I think it's, it's great. And he gave me the ticket, and I said, but I also believe that there's no such thing as coincidences. And so I gave him a god of wonders. And he says, well, nobody's ever given me something after I've given him a ticket. <laughs> and I said, and here's, here's the irony of the story, and I know I'm getting way off sidetracked here. In my B.C. days, if I even saw a cop, lights on or off, I was totally paranoid because I was always doing something wrong. And now I see the red lights coming and I go, oh boy, (laughs) what's going to happen here? Well, grace was shown here and justice had to be done. Look out for the shack. Uh, I just read Warren's Rebuttal. The author of The Shack, you can Google this for yourself, whether you've seen the movie or not. It's, he says it's not a novel. It's a story with his theology in it. And then he was asked in an interview, straight out, are you a universalist? Now when I say that, does everybody understand what I just said? A universalist is a theology that teaches that God is a loving God and everybody goes to heaven. That's what universalism is. I had to disinvite, which was very hard for me to do, Barry Maguire to one of our conferences because I found out he was a universalist. He said, Dwight, I just want to think about Jesus. And I've known Barry since 1975. I was at his 40th birthday party. And he loves the Lord like you wouldn't believe. But... I couldn't let him come. And he says, Dwight, why can't I come to the conference? And I said, because the name of the conference is Staying the Course. And Barry, you're you're a universalist. He says, oh, Dwight, you don't understand. Well, why don't I understand? You don't have any kids. If you had kids, then you would understand that no father would ever send their children to hell. Well, God is a just God. And Jesus is the one who talked about hell more than any other person in the scriptures. And when you read John 3, 16, don't forget to read 17 and 18 afterwards. That God, that the world is already condemned and that men love darkness rather than the light. There's a choice to be made. And it's all the balls, all in your court. The work has been done. So at this moment, uh, when Jesus says these words, Here's an event of separation that I can't put into words, so let's move on to five, which is in John chapter 19. John 19, uh, verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. The Lord was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. He spent the first three hours on the cross in the sunlight. Then the darkness came, and at the end of the darkness he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His last three statements from the cross centered upon himself. His first three statements centered upon others, his enemies, the thief, and John and Mary. But in the last three statements, our Lord focuses upon himself, his body. In this case, I thirst. And so we read here where he says um, that he he thirsts. But again, where I got mixed up with my Psalm 22 and the reason I wanted to take you back there, I want to take you back there again and this will give a little bit more description of more than just I thirst. So if you don't mind, we'll go back to Psalm 22. And again, as you're turning, I made this point on Sunday. There's five different kinds of psalms. There's the acrostic psalm, which is always 22 verses long. Every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is represented as you go through the alphabet. There's prayers of, of repentance. The example of David, after his sin with Bathsheba, pouring his heart out. For repentance, Psalm 150 is a psalm of praising the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise him on twelve strings and on loud clanging cymbals. Um, but here we have on last Sunday in Psalm 118, I said it was a messianic psalm, a prophetic, and so it is here in Psalm 22. Um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where I meant to put that verse. But the other verses, uh, let me draw your attention, where he goes on to say, Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Verse 7, All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot off their lips, they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Down in 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Well, this is more descriptive than just saying, I thirst. Here we find the agony that his mouth is so dry that his tongue is stuck to the top of his mouth, and he's not done talking. And so he says, I thirst. It goes on in verse 16's dogs, that's a reference to Gentiles, have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for clothing they cast lots. There's more description of the Lord's suffering here in Psalm twenty two than we have um from John. So let's go back to John nineteen. And the sixth thing that the Lord says from the cross is in nineteen John nineteen verse thirty where he says when Jesus had received the the wine why did he ask for it because his tongue was stuck to the top of his mouth he couldn't talk so when he had received it then he said it is finished and bowing his head he gave up the spirit when you compare the gospel records you discover that he shouted this statement, with a loud voice, he cried, "It is finished." And I'm sure, with all the strength of the Lord, it was much louder than that. Um, it was a cry, not of defeat, it was a shout of victory. In the Greek language which John wrote, the statement was one word with 10 letters: to It means it's paid in full." It means nothing else can be added to it. It's a fulfilled payment. And then and only then, after he had said, the work is done. The reason that he came to this, this planet was for this hour. As we read earlier, Father, how can I say it? Let this cup pass from me for this hour is the reason I came. Why did Jesus come to earth to be a good teacher, to start good social programs? We should do all those things. Good place for an amen. But that's not why he came. He came to die and take on the sins of the world. And um, it's a a gift that has been completely done one time. All of Hebrews chapter 10 uh, repeats over and over again. Christ, one time, never has to be offered again. In Luke twenty verse 46 is the last thing that Jesus said from the cross so let's turn to Luke and 23 verse 46 and when and and here's and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said father into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The Lord willingly laid down his life. He was the one that says, nobody's going to take my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up again. When the 400 came to arrest him, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. In your Bibles, it might say, I am he, but notice that he is in italics. He said, I am. And when he said, I am, they all fell backwards and fell down. I would have went home at that point. Okay? But they were foolish enough to get back up again. And he said, you were asking, I'm I'm the one. But he was letting them know Who's in control? He says, I have the power. You guys don't. You're coming to take me. All I have to say is, I am. They're all out on the ground. Who's in control? No man takes my life. I'm going here of my own free will. But I also have the power to raise it up again. Jesus is the only one. Boy, I wish I could do this. I wish I could say, Spirit, go home. (laughs) and body, I want my new one. The Lord could do that. They marveled when Pilate was told that Jesus was already dead. You see, the Sabbath was coming, and to hasten the death, they broke the legs of the two thieves, and you would die of suffocation because every time you take a breath, you would have to lift yourself up, and this would go on. It was part of the torture of crucifixion. But when they came to the Lord, they found that he was already dead. And it said that Pilate marveled that he had died so quickly. Usually, it could go on for days that a person could live in this sort of of condition. But no, when the work was done, then he once again addresses his father. He says, Father, into your hands I commend commend my spirit. And then... um, As we close this up today, the work is done to tell us that I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll close with this. I'm past my time. We don't have any time. It's Good Friday. We could be here. (laughs) In Hebrews chapter 2, I sort of liken this to people who begin to... Put things on layaway in September for their kids for Christmas shopping, and and then you go and pick it up when it, when it's all ready to be picked up when Christmas when I, Christmas actually comes. And in Hebrews two, um, oh, this is also good, but I guess I'll just. Uh, Wind this up by looking, uh, picking it up in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testifies at a certain place, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hand. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this is the verse that I want you to get. Now, in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now notice this. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, when he said to Telestai, the work is done. My job is done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So, knowing uh, what the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, God had a plan for the Gentiles and their salvation. So, for the last 2,000 years, he's been gathering a bride. Oh, the work has been done. All you have to do is receive it. And when you receive it, the day is coming when... Um, As it says in Revelation 1.8, one of the promises, this is how he addresses one of the churches. He says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And they were taken away. They were forfeited in the garden. Um, Adam and Eve were given control. They lost it. In the temptation. And this is going to directly tie into the book of Revelation because it's during this period of time in Revelation chapter 5, verse 7, it says that the Father has a scroll in his hand and says nobody could look at the scroll. You couldn't even look at it, the brilliance of it. And, um, and, The word went out, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it up? But there wasn't anybody. And it says there was nobody there that was worthy to not only not take it, but they couldn't even look at it. Well, what is this? It's a title deed to the planet Earth. And there's only one person that can redeem it. And John began to weep uncontrollably, thinking the world is going to go on. Like this. And the angel says weep not John. For the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. To take the scroll. And he went up and he took the scroll out of the hand of the father. And all of heaven erupts. With a new song. And we'll be getting to that very shortly in Revelation chapter 5. As I close this up. Good Friday is good Friday. Even though I believe it wasn't Friday that he was crucified on. The math doesn't work that. That's a different study. But the fact of the matter is, it's finished. It's accomplished. The disciples came to Jesus and said, what more can we do? Lord, what can we do to add, to do the works of God? Jesus said one thing. Believe on the one who was sent. Is that simple? Is that simple? It's a gift. A gift is only a gift if you receive it. Amen? Amen? It's as simple as a guy on the cross. I don't have the right words. I don't know how to talk to God. But what about this guy? Lord, remember me. That was it. And he says, today you're going to be in paradise with me. And a couple days with that, you're going to live with me forever and ever and ever. Palm Sunday. Ah, Palm Sunday. Good Friday. Good, <laughs> greets Good Friday, 2017. Let's stand. The group is going to come out after our prayer. They'll be coming out during the prayer. We always like to sing, O Sacred Head, but Lord, we want to thank you first of all for all that you've done, the immensity of Calvary, What happened when you were separated from your father for the first time and restored us? When you finished your purpose, you and you only had the authority to dismiss your spirit and say, It is finished, the job is done. We would be a fool not to accept your provision. We would be a fool not to be honest with ourselves when we ask ourselves, what was my worst sin? And like the officer, only doing his job, justice will be served. But in this case, Father, the justice was poured out on your only beloved son. And so how grateful we are this Good Friday that um, our sins are forgiven and that... um, Because you live, and we look forward to Sunday, we also are going to live. What a blessed, glorious hope we have. So, Lord, bless your people this day, those that may be watching a live stream. We're so grateful for the cross, for Calvary, and all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.